Welcome to Embargo, the podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Fleming. I'm here, as always, with my friend, colleague, and co-host, Mr. Timothy O'Toole, coming to you live from our offices at Miller and Chevalier in downtown D.C. What's live up, Tim? from Black Lives Matter Plaza exactly. in downtown D.C. Good to see you, Brian. Good to see you. Um, welcome back, everybody. Um, apologies that we've had a brief um, pause in our normal schedule, uh, which was occasioned by um, some international travel and the continued frantic and chaotic pace of trying to keep up with all things Russia these days and um, advising folks about those issues pretty much around the clock still um, as we're stretching into the end of month number two of, of this insanity. So. Um, but thank you uh, for joining us. Happy to have everybody back. Um, before we get started, just the normal disclaimers. We're not giving legal advice. We're not sharing confidential information. And in all opinions that you hear today are mine or Tim's. If you disagree, blame us. Um, if you enjoy the pod, spread the word. Um, please subscribe. Please give us a rating, hopefully a five-star rating. You can get us anywhere you get your pod content. Um, so before we, I go through the roadmap, any kind of quick thoughts before we get started here today? Mr. Fast Atchel? and furious. These questions are still coming in Yeah. fast and furious. Yeah, we'll get to that in a minute because I think, uh, not surprisingly, we're going to start with Russia. <laughs> Topic number one, which is, you know, we threatened the last time to do um, just all sorts of obscure sanctions and export controls topics that only Tim and I care about. But uh, sadly, we, I think, are going to give the people what they want. Um, and uh, we're going to start with Russia again. We are then going to. So that's going to be topic number one. We're going to cover the latest and greatest that has occurred in the last several weeks since we recorded the last episode. We're then going to move on to North Korea and a uh, sentencing and a um, a pretty significant case that we've talked about previously up in SDNY. And then finally, in the lightning round, we're going to hit one topic, um, which I'm going to use. Uh, we will use the U.S.-Iran matchup in the upcoming World Cup as the jumping off point for that. But there's, I think, some very interesting issues that are percolating in the world of sports globally as a result of uh, what's happening in Ukraine right now and, and other sort of related geopolitical events. And so we'll, we'll touch on those things um, briefly at the end of the show. Um, so with that, we will go ahead and get started um, and jump right into Russia. So um, as I alluded to already, we're, we're almost at the two month mark now um, since the uh, invasion of Ukraine began and the U.S. and global response on the sanctions and export controls uh, front began immediately. And um, so why don't I before I get into a couple of the sort of just specific topics that we want to cover. And again, we're not going to try to even address every single thing that has occurred in the last you know three and a half four weeks since we last recorded recording this on april 21st um it, it it has been almost a month since we recorded the last episode there's been the pace has not really slowed significantly in terms of new actions that are coming out both from the us and the eu and the uk and all around the world so um before we get into any of the specifics there are a couple of items we are going to hit and discuss but let me let me open it up the way i did the last time tim um you know any other just kind of thoughts observations musings that you have given what's now transpired the last month since we last you know talked on air given what we've seen now for the first two months um any surprises any interesting developments just kind of generally give you the floor for any anything to start off with here yeah, two big thoughts. I mean, the first is that the, the the ratcheting up of sanctions, and particularly the listing of Spare Bank, which we'll talk about, um, has made it practically, although not legally, impossible for U.S. companies to stay um, in in Russia without a great without a greatly increased U.S. sanctions risk. It's really hard for companies to operate there, even if theoretically they could. And then and and. I think you'll you'll talk about why in just a second. And then I think the second thing, and what what I'm really waiting is for the the, the biggest shoe to to drop, and that is 
what what is the coalition going to do about energy transactions? I mean, it's clear that there is a, a real tension between the U.S. and the U.K. and and Canada, I think, on one side, and the European Union, mostly Germany and France, on the other. Um, you know, with the U.S. U.K. side not being that reliant on Russian oil, with, and with the German and gas, and and with the German side being very reliant on Russian oil and gas, and so so far they've kind of managed to straddle that. By each country has its own, you know, import ban if they want to, but the EU has not done anything like that. Um, but with the you know the general license in the U.S. expiring in June, uh, I think that we're we're getting to the point where that's really the biggest issue that's remaining and will create all sorts of havoc when when it gets resolved. Yeah, and to that point, obviously as we're coming out of the winter months, and obviously a number of observers have picked up on this, that uh, you know, less uh, energy dependency in the cold weather months in Europe and uh, other places that are quite tied to uh, Russian energy. Uh, is that going to perhaps open the door a little bit to a more aggressive approach on this? Uh, I wouldn't be shocked if it does, especially given the way things are trending with the war, uh, which shows no signs of letting up. You know, there's there's been Putin has has started engaging in some pretty serious sable saber rattling now with the um, ballistic missile testing and and uh, some other provocative acts. So, uh, you know no signs that this is going to resolve anytime soon. And as we've observed and many others have observed, even if it does resolve at some point in the near future, that's not, we're not resetting to a, you know, a, a February one pre invasion world anytime soon. This is going to be the reality for a long time to come in all likelihood. And so, you know, what that looks like, but, but to the point Tim made, whether the energy sector perhaps becomes the you know the big pressure point that the U.S. and allies try to push on here with respect to Russia uh, to you know perhaps in, increase the the um, the pain to a to a degree that maybe decision making would be impacted on the Russian side. We'll see. There's also I think coming and I think we may have alluded to this the last time, but there is going to be um, a reckoning coming relatively soon with regard to Russia being able to service all of its debt and the fact that the U.S. Is, has been cutting off, uh, has conspicuously and publicly been cutting off the ability of um, either the Russian central bank or other levers of the Russian financial sector to be able to avail themselves of any um you know, funds or resources that are in the U.S. to to do that. And so as time drags on, um, there's going to be, and this has been written about extensively, obviously, the, the threat of a default, you know, grows uh, increasingly large, if not um, unavoidable at some point. And, and what that may mean, uh, I think, is, is a, a very interesting question that we're going to have to see. And obviously, this is in many ways, this is kind of the logical and um, intended conclusion of what was set in motion in late February, early March with respect to the um, expansive sanctions on the financial sector. So th that's probably a good segue to jump into to sort of the first topic that we want to look at, which is, um, you know, rewinding back a couple weeks to April 6th, which is a, a couple of things happened on April 6th that are really notable. One, Tim already alluded to, which is Sparebank went from, you know, this very um, interesting approach that we had seen initially with respect to, um, you know, the very specially crafted directive that was designed to just cut Sparebank off from, um, you know, correspondent banking in the U.S. and was meant to, you know, curtail slash prohibit the U.S. financial sector from being able to be involved in any sort of transactions relating to Sparebank. Um, well, that all went out the window when they got blocked on April 6th. And so, um, as Tim said, that's a, that was a pretty clear ratcheting up um, that the U.S. Uh, undertook at that point. Alpha Bank, also the largest privately held bank in Russia, blocked on the same day. So those two those two steps right there a big, a very big deal. And I know from certainly my 
experience in the first month or so of the post-invasion sanctions landscape had many discussions with folks who were like, well, but Sparebank is still in play because they're not blocked and we can do this and we can do that. And all of that was true at the time, but not anymore. <laughs> or not, not, not after the end of the very short general license that, that applied uh, after, which I think was one only, week. It was, it a, was week. a week. Yeah, that was it. And so yeah. that's already gone. And so now people are scrambling to understand and to figure out what they can do with spare bank and can't they with spare bank. So no, I had a client who was trying to um, you know, explain to to the board that he he answers to kind of what this was like. And his analogy was, well, it's just imagine that if you had to do business in the United States and Bank of America and J.P. Morgan were blocked in a particular day, like it'd be pretty hard. Right. And, right. and that resonated. Yeah, that's a that's a good analogy to sort of hammer home the the scope and the impact of this. And so that was a, that was April sixth. A whole a whole host of things happened on April sixth. There were a number of other folks that were put on the SDN list, including some, um, you know, sort of Putin enablers, facilitators, family members, etc. Um, but the other big thing, quite frankly, that happened on April sixth that we want to talk about a little bit is the new executive order that was issued on that day, one four zero seven one which um, for those who are not familiar is the executive order that imposes um, by OFAC's very own words an expansive new investment ban in Russia, which applies to all U.S. persons and all new investment in Russia. And we'll come back to that in a minute because that, not surprisingly, has caused a lot of heartburn and consternation in the two weeks since that executive order was issued because OFAC did not issue any real guidance to help under anybody understand what that really means and still hasn't. So um, we, we cut our, we cut our friends at OFAC a little slack on that front. We've, we've been part of some informal discussions wherein we understand that they are working on that. Um, We get all of that, but that doesn't sort of solve the problem in the short term for the regulated community, which is effectively the entire world at this point. And then the, the other interesting piece of that same executive order is there is also a prohibition on the export, re-export, sales supply from the U.S. or by U.S. persons wherever located of any category of services as may be determined by Secretary of Treasury in consult with the Secretary of State. Now, that hasn't been, also has not yet been um, defined or identified. No category of services has yet been identified. But this one also, obviously, for obvious reasons, has people very nervous that um, we're about to be in for, uh, you know, some very uh, broad sweeping prohibitions that are going to be put in place in terms of rendering of services with respect to Russia. Now, obviously, we already have a big expansion on the export control side with respect to uh, physical goods, software technology um, that can be exported to Russia at this point from the U.S. or that are U.S. origin. This is, you know, in some ways kind of the logical extension or flip flip of that and so you know what that will ultimately be i think is a big question mark right now but let me stop there and just pause to sort of turn it to you tim what what do we especially on the new investment ban which i think is the is certainly the one that i am hearing about the most i know i think you are hearing about the most at this point you know we've we've talked to a large extent about the practical difficulties of any kind of payment processing or financial transacting in Russia at at this point, given Sparebank, Alpha Bank, and all the other major banks that have now been blocked. But on the new investment side, what is sort of pick up on a couple threads of what you've been hearing? What are sort of the most interesting questions and unresolved issues that, that you're sort of dealing with at this point? Yes. Yeah, so, so that part of the problem is that there's not guidance. And so, so the new investment um, prohibition it is piggybacked on an earlier prohibition was that there was a prohibition on new investment in the energy sector. And so there was a little guidance on that, but the, the guidance there is, is I think has some problematic language in it because it talks about investment being any commitment of funds and then just gives this incredibly expansive definition. And so, you know, there's, there were some questions coming in at the beginning about whether even, you know, the payment of salaries could be new investment because they're not necessarily pursuant to a new agreement. And certainly, um, they, they could, but but certainly a new employee would be pursuant to a new agreement. And so, is that a new investment of funds? You hire somebody to work to work 
they're replacing another worker, but there's still, you know, a new agreement to commit funds to a particular worker. Even that could could fall within the pretty expansive definition if the one that was created for the energy sector applied. And so there was a there there still is a lot of um, question about that. There's also you know question about whether or not wind down activities could constitute new investment because some of the clients that I've talked to have been talking about getting out, but getting out responsibly so that they they would try and kind of give the operation that they had built in Russia a chance to survive as they leave. And so either selling the operation to the management, but if that happens, you know, the current operation has, has a computer connection to the U S would they replace the computer system by committing funds to a new computer system? Is that new investment in Russia on the way out? You know, right now there's no formal guidance. You know, we've heard informally through the grapevine that divestment is not going to be considered to be new investment. But what does that mean? I mean, that's that's a nice mantra, and it's better than than what exists. But right now, the only thing that they've written down is that maintenance is not new investment and repair is not new investment. But there's a whole lot of other categories of expenses that could fall within the new investment definition if it's as broad as the earlier one for the energy sector. On the other hand. I can't possibly believe that that was what OFAC meant when it when it um, had the new investment ban. So it's going to be just a, a mess right now. Right, and I think on the two, on the couple of points that you just made, this idea of kind of maintenance of pre-existing ongoing operations, whether it's to keep to keep those going or to wind them down, I think you know the it seems pretty clear that that is not the intent. And then in fact, we've also heard that. You know, for those who are sort of trying to distinguish this in your minds, the new investment ban does not equal an embargo, right? That is not just to, again, to sort of, you know, have some logical distinction in your mind, you know, a new investment ban. And and there have been times when this similar language has been used in other programs, and then eventually it's kind of subsumed by an embargo. So it's never clarified all that. Um, all that well or extensively because once an embargo is in place, it's pretty clear rules. It's much easier. Um, But this idea of new investment, while there is no embargo, I think is really driving people a little, um, you know, insane at the moment. And, um, you know, as a practical matter, looking on a case by case or a transaction by transaction or, you know, venture by venture, business unit by business unit basis, whatever it may be, I mean, that's that's essentially what is has to happen at the moment is that but these it's... things are being looked at on case by case. And then there's some documented, usually analysis of whether that is on the right side of the line or not. And and then you proceed or you don't proceed based on that. But that's, that's so what a lot of companies to... are doing. I mean, it just is so hard because I, I you know, with with respect to investment, I kind of feel like I know it when I see it. But the definitions can include a lot more than what what anybody would really call investment. And, you know, the example that I'm sure you've seen, I've seen it too, is there's a lot of guidance under the under the rush the earlier Russia sanctions program with respect to what is new debt. And OFAC has earlier taken this position that if you um, provide goods to someone and uh, they they have to pay you within the the tenor of the debt. Um, or else that is new debt that is that is prohibited by some of the old sanctions programs. One of the one of the um, definitions of new investment includes new debt. So is a you know is a contract where essentially you provide widgets to somebody in Russia and they don't pay you for a certain amount of time? Does that create a new debt that is is a, a form of new investment? The answer has to be no. But theoretically, with with the old definitions, you can easily get to yes, and that's what's creating all the confusion. And I have some clients I know that are either have contemplated or actually instituting advanced payment requirements for anything, any contracts in Russia for exactly that reason, so that they they're trying to zero out the risk that they are going to be um, creating or incurring or providing new debt to to Russia uh, in any way, shape, or form. And so that's what they're trying to do. And obviously renegotiating those commercial terms on the fly is difficult, if not impossible sometimes. And then, um, you know, because of the lack of guidance, there's just, it's just a, you know, there's wild uncertainty kind of in flowing in all directions. I I will say, 
and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, although I think you're we're probably pretty closely aligned on this. I have certainly walked through with a variety of different clients the um, true enforcement risk that might come from getting this wrong at the moment, especially if it's a close call. And I and I think candidly, and again, I'll re-caveat myself here by saying I'm I'm not giving anyone out there legal advice. If you want legal advice on this, please call us offline. But um, while there is this much gray area, to Tim's point, certain types of new investment is clearly new investment. <laughs> Other types that might be arguably operations and maintenance related to divestment, you know, something that's just quite frankly in a you know just not clear that it's in it is truly new or truly investment or and the and the two things combined i have a really hard time believing that ofac at some point down the road is going to go after a company who perhaps got this wrong in retrospect in the first few weeks after the new executive order came out so again that's not to say that anybody should not be trying to do their best to try to figure this out in the in the vacuum that we're in right now with no with no real guidance but uh you know that is something to bear in mind is that you know we you have to do what you can do to be reasonable here and there are just too many moving parts and uncertainties at the moment to to be able to say other than you know, again, to to just refuse to do anything, to treat it like an embargo and to say, we just refuse to do anything. Sure, then you, you could do that. And that, you know, more or less zeroes out your risk in this area. But if you're not going to do that, then you have to be willing to bear a little bit of risk given the uncertainty. And you have to, you know, just again, document it and dock all the reasonable steps you're taking to try to get it right. Yeah. I mean, th- that's basically what I've been telling clients to, again, not legal advice here, but if the, the goal, the purpose of, of a lot of these, um, a, a lot of these new prohibitions, a lot of these new sanctions to me appears to be to essentially cause us companies to get out of Russia. That, that appears to be the foreign policy goal of the, the, the current administration. And so what I've been telling a lot of clients is, if if that's what you're doing, if you're getting out of Russia and you make responsible um, expenses along the way that are designed to help you get out of Russia without creating chaos for you know the work the employees that have been your employees for however long or, or or what have you, that the chances that there will be an enforcement action for that are, are very 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 low. They're not zero because of all the ambiguity, but they're so low because you are essentially fulfilling US foreign policy by getting out and the idea that they would somehow use these ambiguous new investment prohibitions to call some expense that you made in the course of really getting out of Russia um, a, a, a violation of the sanctions just strikes me as is almost zero if it's not zero. And back to the point Tim made earlier which I think is a good one you know, you know, new investment when you see it, you know, quite clearly, I think the idea that if somebody had in the hopper as of, you know, January, 2022, entering into some new joint venture in Russia or, you know, establishing a brand new, you know, wholly owned subsidiary in Russia or or something along those lines, right? Those things, I think probably now off the table, right? I mean, those are pretty clearly, I think on the side of, it, these are new investments and and obviously many of the you know because the new investment ban started in the energy sector as tim mentioned you know a few weeks prior to this broader executive order coming out we saw and have seen already a number of major players us and european who have very high profile projects in the energy sector pull out and announce they're pulling out and they were leaving and now and whether that was anything they were going to be doing or contemplated to be doing going forward was new or not it was clear they had made the calculus that it was going to be too risky, both from a regulatory and a sort of business brand reputational standpoint to stay. And so they're gone. And as Tim said, I think that's ultimately the policy goal here, both by the U.S. and its close allies to encourage its companies to to get out. And perhaps the ones that are able to stay or want to stay are the ones that you know have a much smaller footprint or a little trickle of business that they're just maintaining that would be if you do the cost benefit it's maybe too risky or too difficult or too destructive to pull out and leave and so to maintain that you know perhaps that makes sense but if uh any anything that's going to require you know kind of routine assessment new new big landmark decisions in terms of you know big projects joint ventures 
etc. I think those those things are now they're at least on pause, if not just completely scuttled at this point, for the most part, if it has yeah. any U.S. involvement. Yeah. And the reason that I think this policy is designed to drive companies out is in part because, you know, you can't you can't get in. We know that new investment getting into Russia clearly is new investment. That's what the, the, the thrust of that prohibition is really geared toward. There's just lots of gray areas with respect to other types of expenses in Russia. But then the, for the companies who are trying to stay in, at least from what I'm hearing, there is a huge amount of pressure coming from the Russian government, um, from Russian businesses, uh, to to essentially force those companies to not only stay in Russia, which makes things hard as well, but then to engage with sanctioned entities in Russia. And that's why, personally, I think it's just very hard as a practical matter to stay because you can't have a business that is under constant pressure to to violate sanctions and stay in that jurisdiction. And that's what I'm seeing right now in Russia. Right. Or were the sort of another wrinkle that I've seen there is, you know, for sales to parties yes. in Russia, including to sanctioned parties, right? It's like, right. well, if you're leaving, then you you will be selling all of your assets to this entity at this price uh, on these terms. And, you know, it's kind of gun to head asset sale, fire sale kind of stuff. And Russian government just kind of taking hold of it all, um, you know, kind of piece by piece. So, uh, yeah, I think that's going to continue to be, uh, you know, sort of a big mess. And, and perhaps as more guidance does trickle out, which we do expect will happen in the in the coming weeks. Um, and as time goes on and, you know, lines get drawn and, and things kind of shake out a little bit more, um, this will become a little easier to navigate. But right now, two weeks into this broad new investment ban, it's certainly a huge problem and a, and a constant, um, you know, source of concern we know among um, in all corners of the global economy, essentially. Let me before we move on to um, the more recent actions from this week. Any thoughts on the on the services ban or prohibition that that is that is you know now out there but yet to be um, sharpened or scoped or um, any any sectors identified? What are what are your thoughts well, on that? Well, we know how work? these so we know how these things work in other areas, right? So the president issues an order saying you know. Services are prohibited in the sectors identified by the Secretary of Treasury. And you don't know what they're going to be. But then, like the day before or the day of, they that they come out and, and issue a bunch of um, designations for a particular sector in the sanctioned country, there's a determination by the Secretary of Treasury that they find that this particular sector is a problem from a foreign policy standpoint and needs sanctions. I think. This is just a, a hunch that this is kind of laying the the groundwork, laying kind of the the procedural framework for going after the energy sector. I think that that's the sector where there are the most services that are being provided from the West that are that are kind of helpful to the Russian economy right now, producing revenue for the Russian economy. And so I suspect that that's where that comes from because everything else, you know, the goods in in that sector are now prohibited for the most part, or at least they need a license if they're not EAR 99. But the services, I think the most services coming in from the West are the, the energy sector. And and, and that, that it, my prediction is that at some point, probably in mid-June, the Secretary of Treasury, the Treasury will determine that the energy sector um, is one in which U.S. services need to be banned and, and there will be a prohibition yeah. on those services. Yeah, I have a feeling, I think that's probably right. I do have a feeling that unlike what we've seen in the past where, um, you know, with um, 14024, where there have been new sectors that are getting added kind of periodically. And now we have, um, you know, we have technology and we have electronics and we have maritime and we have all these other things that have been added. And then, like you said, there's an announcement that there's a determination that's been made by Secretary of Treasury in consultation with Secretary of State. And then that day or the next day, there's an initial wave of sanctions that are imposed on a number of entities. I think this is going to be thrown out there. Um, you know, the gauntlet will be thrown down um, with largely pros prospectively. I'm not quite sure how it would even work that they would right. announce it and then they would also sanction people for violating it <laughs> with no notice. That would be an interesting <laughs> test case, honestly. Um, but uh, 
but I think it's um, I think that's right that the energy sector seems to be the most obvious target here. Um, although you know I could see mining and other kind of areas like that that are big revenue generators yeah. where we know that there's a lot of Western um, activity or has been historically. So um, you know so we'll see. But I think that's one. And I've had some interesting conversations with companies who are trying to game out what their risk is here. You know, what is what is this going to mean? And and now, obviously, if there's already decisions being made to wind down and get out, then perhaps this becomes less of an issue. But um, to your point, this this is this is geared towards services that could be provided from outside of Russia. Right. So you could be sitting in the U.S. or in Latin America or in Europe or Africa or anywhere else as a U.S. person. And then all of a sudden, boom, this gets issued and you can't render those services anymore or it's a violation. So, Well, one, one thought that I'm having from this conversation is that it could be financial services, in which case that would essentially be a prohibition on dollar transactions in Russia, which currently doesn't exist. I mean, there's lots of unsanctioned Russian banks, so you can use dollars in Russia right now, though clearing them through, through the central bank could be tough, but there is, there is a general license that allows at least some of that. But... But if the financial services were prohibited by U.S. persons, then the dollar would basically be off limits in Russia. Right, which again is would make a lot of sense, would be consistent with what the current approach has been, and would just be sort of another vector to get at this particular this particular uh, issue for for OFAC. So, in any event, I think more questions than answers there in terms of how that's going to be deployed, what it's going to look like, when it might happen, we just don't know at this point. But certainly one to keep an eye on going forward um just to um just to talk quickly then about something that came down yesterday which i thought was kind of interesting so there was um so we're recording this april 21 yesterday on the 20th there was a a big list of um designations attached to some sanction uh, sanctions evasion network um in connection with one particular sdn and a number of uh individuals and entities that have been deployed to um uh, you know, allegedly evade sanctions um, in connection with that individual. And then interestingly, there was a um, there was the first set of designations that were targeting crypto miners in Russia. And for those who are unaware, you know, Russia is kind of uniquely situated as a cryptocurrency mining hub, given its um, given what's necessary to operate big server farms and the energy resources that are necessary and the like. And this is obviously been or was was you know designed to be potentially a big moneymaker revenue generator and there was one particular um miner that was uh called out that was singled out just yesterday um and bit river and a number of bit river um you know affiliates and subs were also added to the sdn list yesterday and so um you know just kind of another interesting wrinkle and extension um that you know i think is worth calling attention to um and one other thing that i'll mention that actually came out yesterday this is also a, a bit of an um you know this is just kind of a standalone um faq that caught my attention which was relating to credit card operators and um payments uh, of credit card operators relating to processing transactions involving sanctioned banks. And so, you know, not surprisingly, and I think this is the way I would have analyzed it if I had been asked this question by a sanction, by a, by a credit card operator is if you're a U.S. person or U.S. entity having any involvement in processing those, um, you know, payments that are affiliated with run by, um, supported by those blocked financial institutions is going to be a problem unless there's a, um, you know, a general license or, or a specific authorization in place. Interestingly, though, with respect to, and this is kind of what I want to highlight, there's a question or there's um, some language in there in the FAQ response that talks about um, if you're a non-US operator of a credit card system and you have cards that are issued by um, foreign financial institutions that are subject to sanctions, there's a the 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 one line they draw is relating to using um using those cards in the US which is interesting um that wouldn't have necessarily been what I would have thought would be highlighted there in terms of the risk there but that was kind of the one thing that was being highlighted i think the moral of the story not surprisingly is 
um, you know, for any corner of the financial world that has any dealings with any of these sanctioned financial institutions in Russia, I think, you know, having a clear understanding of both what your own connections are there and then on the flip side of that, what your connections are to the United States and the possibility that anybody is going to be using these services or interfacing with these services in a way that will directly inter interface with the U.S. Uh, or implicate the U.S. is, you know, sort of the the first order of business in terms of trying to understand what your risk may be. Um, so just wanted to highlight those two things, the crypto mining thing and the credit card thing, I thought two kind of interesting um, you know, sort of subgenres, if you will, of the of the sort of crushing financial sanctions that we've we've seen kind of been rolling out over the last number of weeks. Yeah, that the guidance that you mentioned is is kind of weird. It's almost like they're worried that a bunch of um, you know tourists are coming to Washington with spare with, bank with their spare bank credit EU cards, credit yeah. cards, <laughs> and like they're warning them that if they get here and they try to use the spare bank EU credit cards, like they're gonna that, that those are gonna get rejected. And it seems like you know there's lots of things that that are on OFAC's mind that that would have those small you know credit card transactions in the US would have been kind of lower on the list, but I'm sure that that is know. a result of some, right. Of some inquiries that have come in, whether through feedback or directly in terms of advisory opinions and guidance requests. But, um, I'm, I'm certain of that, but in all events, yeah, it is kind of a very, it seems like a, it's a pretty narrow issue to devote an entire FAQ to, um, given how many <laughs> other issues are out there that have not been tackled to date. So. so now now OFAC's FAQs are required reading before your family vacation to Washington. Right? Yeah, exactly. And that's FAQ that that's FAQ 1030, by the way, in case anybody is um, keeping track of that at home. Um, again, no shots to our friends at OFAC. We know that you're dealing with an overwhelming amount of work at the moment, but um, it is just sort of an interesting wrinkle. Um, just very quickly before we wrap up Russia for today and for this week, one other just sort of you know, just kind of one thing that caught my attention that I've had to spend some time dealing with and thinking about is um, I think the last time around we highlighted the fact that, and this is to shift over now to the Commerce Department for a moment and to the export control realm, we highlighted the um, announcement in the press release that Commerce had issued relating to commercial and private aircraft exported to Russia um, in apparent violation of um of the EAR because these were U.S. Um, controlled aircraft and the the flag there that you know anybody doing anything with respect to these aircraft, whether it be servicing, maintenance, maintenance, etc., risked violating General Prohibition 10. And there was a big lengthy list of all the um, aircraft carriers and and the uh, um, identification of those aircraft on that press release. Well, a few weeks later, there was a there were temporary denial orders that were issued with respect to um, Airflot, Azure Air, and UT Air, which are three pretty significant um, operators in Russia. Um, and those TDOs, for anybody who's curious or who has taken a look at them, are very, very broad. And it is the TD, the temporary denial order, which is something that I recall um, being deployed a number of times when I was. Um, still in government working with the folks at commerce on these issues um but not one that we have seen that much um in certainly not in this kind of high profile way of late um you know a very expansive authority that allows for the commerce department to essentially um you know kind of ring fence and make off limits the ability for um folks to deal with these carriers uh not just with respect to providing us um controlled items to them, but in, in a number of other ways as well. And so would encourage anybody to, to who's curious or who has any dealings in this space to sort of take a closer look at that, because that is another one. I think that just came out about two weeks ago um, as well. I'm forgetting the, the precise date of that one. Um, I think it was April 7th. So it was right around the time that um, the new executive order came out on the new investment ban. But I encourage folks to look at that as well. That is another interesting one. And it's certainly one that I know is having some uh, pretty significant rip, ripples in that sort of corner of the um, economy. It's huge. I mean, I, I was looking at it for a for a client question recently, and and it 
it is essentially a, an, an SDN prohibition coming from commerce. I mean, it's not exactly, but for pretty much no dealings with respect right. to any items yep. that are subject to the EAR. And and I mean, that is is very unusual. And we're talking about Airflot. We're talking about, you know, big airlines in Russia. And, and it kind of, because of all the other sanctions, really, you know, no pun intended, but flew under the radar, and and it's now you know when I was when I was went to kind of look at the question that I got on this, I was thinking you know that it would be relatively limited because it's just an export order. But when you go and read the order, it's pretty much no dealings for anyone. Yeah. I mean, they start out with what the comp- the listed company can't do, which is normal, and then they they basically say, and no other person can do the following things with these airlines, right. and they're. Ex- extremely expansive so i think it's a good catch on your part yeah exactly exactly right and not just relating to u.s persons either so in some ways it's sort of yeah it's any person anywhere around the world with respect to these um these entities so um just just another sort of uh you know in the sort of miscellaneous uh interesting additional uh actions taken of late i just wanted to throw that one out there anything else um you want to sort of chime in with before we wrap up russia and move on to north korea so after we finish recording, but before we release the next episode, the oil import ban will start tonight because the general license will expire at midnight. So no more Russian oil coming into the United States after tonight, unless Good you get call. a license. Unless you get a license. Good call. All right. So with that, um, we are going to wrap Russia for this episode. I will. I would say next time we will stay away from Russia, but I doubt that's the case so i won't even i won't even um i I know i'll be wrong as soon as the words leave my mouth so i won't i won't even say it so um so with that why don't we pivot to uh north korea and to the sentencing of virgil griffith in sdny that just occurred a few days ago and i'll turn to tim yeah we had to return to this story because this is the the crypto bro that we have talked about before who was um, somebody who was very knowledgeable about the cryptocurrency industry had a business that was related to the cryptocurrency industry um, you know asked the State Department for permission to go to a crypto conference in North Korea was told no went anyway um, spoke at the conference and I think based on the original facts this looked to to me at least like kind of a silly case it was kind of a like don't go don't um don't don't ask for permission and then when it's denied do it anyway but just kind of what could be the real harm of going to the to a conference and i still think that there's some aspects of the case that are like that but it but um now that it's gone to sentencing and and mr griffith got a pretty significant sentence on on april 12th he got a sentence of what 63 months which was the low end of the guidelines by the way but still a pretty significant sentence the fact that there was even a guideline sentence given here is notable because there's plenty of iepa cases that don't result in a guideline sentence especially when there was no remuneration that he received at all for the the services that he allegedly rendered but and this is, you know, as as someone who has defended many criminal cases and and many cases like this, but the emails, um, as I was reading through some of the some of the sentencing documents beforehand, um, there were apparently some pretty bad emails where uh, Mr. Griffith was uh, apparently talking about going to the conference and all of the ways that he could help the North Koreans evade the sanctions that were currently against them using cryptocurrency and that that and that that could be very lucrative for him to to be able to do now i don't i I didn't see anything in the sentencing memos about that actually coming true about him ever having made a bunch of money on this but it does it does take this case out of kind of a kind of a goofy nerdy crypto person going to north korea because they're kind of naive about what the possible ramifications are and turn it into a like i'm going there to help them evade sanctions and make a lot of money type case which i think is probably explains why he did not get a below guideline sentence right and again i think it's important to point out he he pled to conspiracy right so it doesn't really matter if that never came to fruition right and and so uh, you know he pled to conspiracy Tim, I think, hit the nail on the head. There are some really awful emails that seem to establish pretty well the intent piece of this and the bad intent piece of this. There was, and then there's the the 
also the fact that Tim mentioned, which is he asked the State Department for a visa or permission to go and was denied and went anyway. And so I think you add all that together and that kind of cocktail of facts is just really is really difficult to fight against. And, and, you know, I will say, and Tim and I both have experience in this, but I, I will say both on, on the government side and on the defense side, you know, again, a, a guideline sentence in one of these cases is, is notable. And so even though it's at the bottom of the guidelines, I mean, this is a five plus year sentence for going and speaking at a conference in, in North Korea, but going and speaking at a conference. So, um, that's what it, you know, what it boils down to. So, um, in, and in many other cases that I was involved in or am aware of, there were, you know, millions of dollars of money that were made of illicit proceeds for illegal exports and sanctions violations and what have you, and, and far, uh, lower sentence, custodial sentences imposed. So I do think it's, um, just, it's just notable kind of on its own merits just for that reason, I think. And, and obviously I think this is clearly a case that, will any defense any defense counsel worth their salt down the road will try to distinguish based on some of the bad facts that tim already mentioned um but that the government will now have in their pocket to be like look this is this you know this is apples to apples here let's mr griffith did x and this was you know let's 63 months or you know 63 to 78 months that's the appropriate sentence here so something again to be aware of i think generally speaking for anybody who's wading into any of the criminal uh, side of, of sanctions violations here for certainly for defense counsel out there who, who are thinking about these things. This is one to, you know, certainly read up on. It's one, it's a case we followed pretty closely and, and, you know, one that I think, um, you know, we'll see, we'll see if ultimately this is an outlier to some degree, all these cases end up being somewhat distinguishable on the facts case to case. And, and that's part of the reason that, um, you know, sentencing outcomes are not very predictable in this, in this area in particular, I think, because there's, um, there is just so much variance based on the, the facts and circumstances and, and the, you know, the sentencing factors, the guideline factors that are, that are being brought to bear in each case. So, um, but just one that we wanted to highlight for everybody. Yeah. I would, I would say that this is one area having taken a few clients to sentencing in this area that, um, is one of the most widely variable sentencing areas that I've seen. You know, it, it, as you mentioned, Brian, a lot of the guidelines are high, so a lot of these cases come out below the guidelines. But there are some wild cards out there that I've seen that come out above the guidelines. When you, you try to make sense of it all and getting ready for a sentencing hearing in, in, in these cases, it really is difficult because, you know, you can talk about every case being different on the facts and they are. And this one had some facts that I would have preferred if I were Mr. Griffith's defense lawyer, not to have there mostly the emails, but um, still like under the underlying conduct is a willful sanctions violation in these cases. And, you know, you get sentences that are just all over the map, given those same or similar basic facts. Yeah, it varies district to district. It varies judge to judge. I mean, this is true of all, this is true, obviously, of all federal crimes, but I think in this area in particular, and having had to take a kind of extensive deep dive look at this on a number of occasions to compare these things across jurisdictions and across, uh, you know, sentencing judges, it is one where it tends to vary wildly. It's also the case that, you know, bear in mind, these are not cases that get sentenced very often so you're not going to find too many judges who are repeat players here and have had an IEPA case that was you know pled and went to sentencing or you were sentenced after trial or whatever the case may be it's it may often be the case that one a judge may get only one of these you know especially in the the usual suspects type districts like SDNY, EDNY, EDVA, DDC which are probably the four that get the most um you know, even there, you're probably only dealing with, a, you know, the more experienced judges maybe have had two of these, you know, right. at, at most. Right. So it's not it's not like other federal crimes where you're going to have more of a sense of what how this is all going to shake out. So anyway, 
Um, now we're kind of geeking out on the, uh, the sentencing guidelines and sentencing tendencies across federal um, district courts. But, um, you know, it is something important to bear in mind, I think, for those out there who are thinking about these issues and making arguments in this in these um, types of cases uh, just to, to sort of, you know, think these things through and to account for some of this unpredictability. Yep. So with that, let's pause for the lightning round sound effect and one topic. And so here, Mr. Tool, I'm going to give you a hypo. So right. as, and then we'll use that as a jumping off point. So if um, this is like, if I were, if I were teaching a law school class right now, this would, this would be a, a fun hypo to, to start with. Um, so as you probably know, the, uh, the draw for the world cup uh, occurred just recently since the last time we recorded. Um, the U.S. managed to qualify this time around. Uh, good for Team USA. And it turns out that in their pool, in pool play, they are matched up with, among other countries, Iran. And we'll be playing a match against Iran in Qatar uh, this fall when the World Cup is held. So here's the scenario. Uh, in the midst of the game, there's a corner kick. The Iranians line up for a corner kick, and the ball is sent into the box. And it ricochets off the head of a U.S. defender into the goal for an own goal. Is that a prohibited provision of services by that U.S. team member to the government of Iran? And would OFAC be issuing uh, a penalty on the very next day as a result? Oh, I think that would be maximum penalty immediately. I mean, certainly it's a it is a sanctions violation. That is a that is a a provision of sporting services. Scoring to, an own goal, scoring an own goal in a World yeah. Cup match on behalf of Iran by an American, I, I, I think that's hard to say that that's not. There is no <laughs> general license that would allow. For there is that. no general I license to sure. cover that. Um, so you know, we just about this, but I want to actually use this as a jumping off point for a more serious conversation. And we've and we've touched on this in the past, in particular when when it came to the diplomatic boycott of uh, by the U.S. of uh, the Beijing Olympics. But um, for those who are following this, when when the U.S. got matched up with Iran, not surprisingly, Twitter and many other um, corners of the Internet <laughs> lit up with similar kind of snarky, creative um, comments and questions and queries and scenarios about what it could mean when the U.S. plays Iran in the World Cup. Um, just recently, and this is part of the reason that this all kind of came to mind as something that was worthy of discussion, um, Wimbledon just announced that it was barring Russian nationals from participating in Wimbledon um, when the tournament starts in about six weeks or so. Um, and that's a little bit of a change because um, it had sort of previously been the position, it seemed internationally that any Russian, um, you know, teams or Russian Federation was going to be barred, but now they, Wimbledon has decided unilaterally, it seems under a lot of pressure from the UK government to just bar um, Russian nationals from participating in at Wimbledon, which includes um, Medvedev, who is the, I think the number two player in the world right now. And so, yeah. you know, this is a big deal. And, you know, oddly and and somewhat ironically, it seems that um, and and we were just joking with our producer Matt ahead of the telecast that or the broadcast that um, you know obviously in in ice hockey uh, world you know with we're here in D.C. with um, Alexander Ovechkin and um, there's been some calls and some um, people who've taken shots at him and others who have been seen as kind of close to Putin or or. Um, otherwise, you know, kind of flag waivers for the Russian, um, you know, hockey team in the past um, as that there should be some actions taken against them. So just I, I just want to sort of tee all of this up to say, um, yeah, and the, the last point I'll make is, you know, oddly, even though this has, you know, we're talking about blocking the largest bank in Russia you know, OFAC blocking the largest bank in Russia and the impact that that has on the Russian economy, the global economy is obviously, you know, monumental by comparison to prohibiting a handful of Russian nationals from participating in certain international sporting events or Iranian nationals or, you know, fill in the blank, whatever country you want to talk about. But it seems that this is one that hits, that raises the ire, certainly, of the of the home governments, um, 
as much as anything, quite frankly, because of the symbolic value, right? And the and the idea that we're gonna, um, you know, we're gonna sort of erase you, if you will, from and erase the best of your country from the um, the world of international sport, which is which is a place that obviously countries have for many decades and centuries sought to kind of glorify themselves and uh, and their flags and and their governments. And so, just kind of, I'll just kind of stop there and throw that to you as to what your thoughts are on um you know what you know what i've just alluded to with the world cup and wimbledon and and some of these other uh scenarios and whether you think that there's um a any utility in this or you know or just kind of how you assess all of this generally i mean it's actually a way harder question than i would have thought and I'll, i'll tell you why i think it's so hard and we talked about it with the chinese olympics as well uh, on the and and I think this this question is even harder. I, I you know I I I I try on on the podcast not to to express my own kind of political economic what what have you views, but it's really hard to watch what's going on in Ukraine without just being appalled by the Russian government and why by what what the what Putin is doing in Ukraine. It's just shocking and and. And and so, it's very hard not to be so upset by this that you can justify doing anything, not only to Russia but to Russians. Um, that said, instinctually, I, I think it's it's terrible to go after you know Russian athletes simply because they're Russian. It has a it, it has they they. Whatever they they have little ability to affect the, the the war, probably zero ability for most of them. It doesn't seem like you know going after Alex Ovechkin to just pick an example, um, it, based on the appalling behavior of the Russian government is 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 serves any particular purpose other than to just kind of it's almost a form of national origin type discrimination we hate russia and so we're gonna just punish all things russia without regard to the point but it does have a symbolic value and it does kind of express the values of the country that what the russian government is doing is terrible and we're just not going to have anything to do with you so i i find it to be a really hard question i i generally like to keep politics out of sports i think that it does that that sport sports is a good place and i I'm, I'm happy that the u.s is playing iran even though i'm not a fan of the iranian government either and they've done a lot of really objectively bad things but but i don't i don't know why that is because i do get that that you know that sanctioning high profile athletes from a particular country can not only have symbolic value but it can also i i i, I expect that it would get at you know Putin in the same way that sanctioning him personally does. It doesn't really serve any purpose. I mean, Putin is going to be able to spend money in Russia, whether we put him on the SDN list or not. But we're trying to send a message with it. And sanctioning high-profile Russian athletes, particularly ones close to the government in Russia, or at least seemingly close to the government, might serve the same purpose. I just hate the idea instinctually. Yeah, it's a finger in the eye to Putin and to the government in a in a pretty big way right and i think that's and we've talked about this before we talked about this when we talked about the beijing olympics um you know i think another sort of interesting wrinkle here is uh you know there are obviously plenty of russian nationals who are very uh, i think to tim to your point that you know what's happening in ukraine's appalling and um there are plenty of russian nationals who agree that it is appalling and disagree adamantly with everything their government is doing at the moment. Now, obviously, having the ability to speak out on that is limited, if not impossible, certainly for people who are in Russia, I think, for the most part, unless they take their lives, uh, you know, they're willing to jeopardize their own lives and the lives of their family. Um, You know, for athletes, though, an interesting kind of wrinkle there, right? Because if you if you have and again, I'm not suggesting that there should be some kind of litmus test to, uh, you know, if you're opposed to the war, then you can participate. And if you're with your, you know, with your home country government, then you can't participate. I'm not necessarily saying that that's, um, you know, a sensible way to go about this, but um, there is something, there is something to that, right? Is to, again, to the extent that, uh, you know, the high profile, you know, elite athletes are again, kind of symbolic 
you know, tokens or pawns of their home governments. And if you're sort of taking those things off the board, taking those people off the board, you know, you sort of that's a cost that at least some governments are willing to pay um, to, again, you know, uh, exact some sort of, you know, symbolic price at the minimum to to Putin and to the government. And so, um, you know, I don't I don't know. I agree. I think it's of I think I'm of I'm of many minds and many thoughts on this. I don't think that it's it's sort of susceptible of easy answers. Um, and um, yeah, I think it's just um, it's kind of a fascinating exercise uh, to, to just think about it, you know, similar, similar thing, right? Let's say after the U S Iran game, a U.S. player takes his Jersey off and signs it and hands it to one of the Iranian players. And then we have on video that he's essentially committed a sanctions violation, right? Like right. what is, what is that now? The idea that that would ever be pursued or enforced is, is fairly ludicrous, which is part of the reason that we're just kind of bringing these things up. Um, you know, as to sort of, you know, illustrate to some degree the the lengths that you could, you know, sort of spin these things out. But, um, you know, I, I think it's just I, I think we're maybe not quite through the looking glass, but this is sort of, a, you know, the sort of the policy and in particular the the sanctions policy and sort of the, the way that we have gone about or the thinking that informs sanctions policy being kind of a, adopted. And obviously this is not new boycotts and, you know, prohibitions on the participation in international sporting events uh, are decades old at this point. This is not, you know, a late breaking development, but it is fascinating that there's there's been this kind of there is a little bit of convergence here. And, and some of the same many of the same things that are informing one are, are certainly informing the other and are, are they're kind of becoming part of the same conversation, just, a, you know, kind of on a spectrum. Yeah, I mean, I do. I just think it's so hard because, you know, every ounce of me wants to just say it's sports just kind of leave it alone and leave it as the last kind of refuge where you know you, people can just kind of coexist regardless of nationality and just um you know participate and merit will win and and there'll be a you know camaraderie and what have you but uh, on the other hand like you know the world cup is huge business wimbledon is huge business um you know sporting events generally are a huge business and huge business is kind of the realm of economic sanctions. So it's really hard for me to explain why I think they should just stay out of it, but it just, it just seems unfair. And I don't, I, I don't know why it's any more unfair than the rest of the sanctions that are targeting often, you know, innocent companies in sanctioned jurisdictions that can't do anything about their government policy and have no ability to change it, but are still kind of targeted by the sanctions, which seems unfair at the micro level, but I totally get at the macro level. Yeah. I mean, I just, just sort of one last comment here, and this has turned into a decidedly non-lightning lightning round topic, but it, it is as, as we are wont to do from time to time, but I think this is just kind of a fascinating sort of thought exercise. Um, you know, obviously we're, we're not far away from the era when certain powers that be were imploring U.S. athletes in particular and black U.S. athletes specifically to shut up and dribble or shut up and play and not to interject politics into sports. And obviously, I think um, I, I think I can speak for me and Tim. We, we fundamentally disagree with that aspect of you right. know not interjecting politics to sports, like the idea that. Um, and so this is in some ways kind of the bizarro flip side of that, right? Is if you have, you know, folks who athletes who are perhaps, you know, either have been in the past or now are supporting their governments or maybe are just being silent, you know, either out of necessity or because they do perhaps support their government, but recognize that there would be probably more severe costs to that would come to them if they were to speak out and support because of where they are now living or um, applying their trade. They They don't do that. And. Um, you know, to silence equal assent, you know, I, I you know, th that's that these are all these are all, again, interesting questions that I don't have easy answers for. But it is all it is all somewhat wrapped up in this same idea that, you know, for, you know, good or for ill, you know, what sports is kind of symbolically now on the especially at the highest level, the international stage, the elite level, um, it is perhaps more and it is big business, as Tim said, and that's exactly right. And the idea of hitting these interests uh, and, you know, not only putting a, a symbolic dent in, you know, Russia's uh, pride 
perhaps, but also in the bottom line and the ability of some of its highest, uh, most well-known performers to profit while the war is going on. You know, I think that's, again, an in, just a very interesting, um, difficult sort of topic to grapple with. And, and I think we're going to see, I think, you know, there's been a lot of quick reaction to the Wimbledon thing. I think that's going to hold, although I think they've been criticized and we'll see what happens. And But there's going to be more of this. I mean, we're going to see more of this. It's going to get messier and messier over the coming months, especially if the war continues to drag on. So, I, you know, be prepared for there to be some more, um, you know, messiness in this area. Yeah. And on Russia, I mean, I, I definitely think that part of it is that this war is seen as, I mean, it's it's openly called in a lot of the U.S. media, Putin's war. And Putin Putin's is somebody Putin's who's... Putin's war of choice. Putin's right, war his of war choice. of that's choice. That's the State Sorry, Department's... Yeah, that's how but, they like to but in But but Putin has... His brand is kind of linked with sports. And so the idea that you're... If, if, if you're trying to essentially hurt Putin where he lives, that you would kind of carve out the sporting realm from that seems like you're you're leaving an opportunity on the table but again i just keep coming back to i i hate the idea that we're punishing these athletes who who have such a short window of competition and have really devoted their lives to to sport and not to politics it just seems unfair to me but i i get the other argument yeah all right well with that let's put that to rest as again our our 20 minute long lightning round segment uh, will come to, <laughs> will come to a conclusion having resolved absolutely nothing of course. Um, but anyway, thank you for indulging us. Uh, so that's all we have for this episode. Uh, this will be up last week of April. Um, and uh, I think we're going to be back on the regular schedule, although we have some more international travel ahead in, in May. So we may have to readjust again, but I think we'll, we'll have another episode up at some point, kind of middle of May on the normal schedule. Um, and so, yeah. So any, any parting words before we wrap Mr. O'Toole? No, uh, the longest lightning round set segment in the history of lightning round segments is not. It's probably not actually given our, (laughs) given our very, (laughs) it's only 20 minutes. (laughs) Uh, all right. On that note, we're going to wrap, but thank you all for joining us. Uh, and until next time, stay, stay safe and stay sanctions free. Stay sanctions free, everybody. All right. Bye. This podcast was produced by HeartCast Media.